Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. I am Pastor Don Morelli, joined as always by the Predator, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. And actually uh, doing pastor You are. Again. Like back in the back in the mm-hmm. in the pilot's chair. Back in the saddle again, as they say. That's right. Steering that plane right into the mountaintop. <laughs> if you want to appreciate God's unlimited grace, just hang out with pastors for a while. <laughs> and uh it's an amazing thing, but uh, welcome. We are coming to you uh, again today uh, from the Behavioral Sciences Unit, lower level of HT headquarters in Johannesburg, South Africa. Wow. I, I had enough of winter in Minnesota, and so we picked up and moved the mobile unit to Jayburg. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. That'll work. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, shout out to all our podcast friends, Pastor Eric Brown at the Gospel Boldly Podcast. With uh, that one guy who uh, does stuff with uh, commercials and things that we yeah, like. Yeah, Tomas. Tomas. And uh, shout out to the Black Cloister, Pastor Aaron Fanker and Pastor uh, Hull. <clears throat> Excuse me, Pastor Hull. Mm-hmm. And as we affectionately refer to as Mammon. Uh, and uh, he's from Texas. What can you ex- I mean, Texas is its own planet. So go check out their podcasts. They're available through the Higher Things uh, website. You can get them through iTunes and all of the usual places. Uh, Likewise, shout out to Lutheran Witness for shouting us out. I was informed that they gave us a recommendation and uh, said we were a podcast worth listening to. Go figure. Which, yeah, right? Which makes me question the editorial leadership (laughs) at the magazine. Well, yeah, because the month before they featured my coffee. Right. Start. If we weren't such a small church body, I'd be suspicious that something was happening <laughs> yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. And a shout out to JJ, uh, who emailed me uh, this week and sent me mm. links to some really cool videos. Yeah. And uh, the Tai Chi versus MMA video is appreciated. I uh, I think we talked about that and I made a mistake. I, I For some reason, I remembered it being Wing Chun, but it was actually Tai Chi. Oh, okay. So he sent that to me. And so I repent. <laughs> I repent of it. Uh, but shout out to JJ and thank you. And we will eventually... Uh, uh, get to your uh, request to do an episode on the Heidelberg Disputation for show. Yeah. And uh, maybe some I, other Heidelberg stuff too. Other Heidelberg stuff may actually be coming down the turnpike yep. from higher things. Yeah. Just saying. That'd be cool. New translation possibly, maybe some Bible studies or something, some videos. Mm-hmm. It is the 500th anniversary of that document. And we talked in the last podcast about C.S. Lewis about how he, well, for myself and other Christians, new Christians, older Christians, laity, uh, Lewis is is a gateway drug to theology, I think. At least it was for me. And at least prepared me for heavier lifting, theologically speaking. And in the same way, the Heidelberg Disputation, for me, is that work of Luther's that did the same. The, The Heidelberg Disputation, for me, prepared me to read Luther. And the key point for me in the Heidelberg, not only the the stuff that Luther says about the theologian of the cross distinguished from the theologian of glory, but what he has to say about free will Mm. has always – that whole topic has been an interest of mine since I'm an adult convert and wasn't really looking for a a come-to-Jesus moment. Mm. Uh, And I was just talking on the phone with someone last night that – to say once again, when I was at – College, Concordia St. Paul, when I finished up my my, my degree, <clears throat> I ended up rooming with and being in the same dorm with many 
pre-seminary students, uh, DCE students, youth directors, and so forth. It's and like other pre-seminary students that I was... Well, it was just very interesting for me as an atheist to be lumped in with these... Oh, I got you. <laughs> these, these Bible thumpers. And yet, after the fact, I and two others ended up becoming pastors, and all of the rest did not. Huh. And it's always... It's one of those puzzles of my life that... The atheist went on to become a pastor, and all the pre-seminary students went on to other vocations. Yeah. Do you think they were approaching theology more like philosophy? And that free will question comes up with that, right? It does. Yeah. I, I think coming back after the fact, in when I run into them years later, when I get the opportunity to speak with them, I think it is when you go to college, hmm. whatever your religion of your parents is, is stripped away. Or at least you're confronted with the religion of your parents at college because you're challenged. Yeah. And depending on where you grow up, in Minnesota, for example, in the upper Midwest, many students that attend Concordia's grow up rural, in a rural area. And yeah. I think what growing up in a rural area, or maybe you grew up homeschooled, and or maybe a combination of both, whatever it may be, I think I, I think that's the thing is that when you go to college, at least like I said, in, in the context of where I was at college and, and the people I was around, the culture I was in, a lot of them blew up mm. uh, in college when they were challenged or just the process of maturity led them in different directions. The Lord, you know, wanted to give them different uh, vocations. Yeah. It's kind of pastor or DC or youth. I think it's kind of hard to choose a church vocation at that age. I guess the Romans mm -hmm. get away with it, but that's the vow of celibacy and all sorts of other stuff. That's right. probably hard to, <laughs> you know, if you're a nun, what you have to, there's different levels, right? Degrees. So you get, you get yeah. an opportunity to kind of back out, I suppose. It almost seems like the more rigid the system of legalism and morality is within your church body or your religion, the quote-unquote easier it is to adhere through those challenging times because you fall back on the restrictions, the regulations, mm -hmm. the rituals and rubrics of your belief system. Yeah, you're making God happy, right? And you have to do it whether you want to or not because this is what God wants for you. And you know that because your parents, your pastor, and everybody at church told you right. this. I ran into the same problem at, at seminary, and because I went to an ELCA seminary, and I say this in the context of my own personal experience, so don't take it the wrong way, but I met several women at seminary who were told they would make good pastors, who discovered at seminary that they didn't want to be pastors, yeah, because they, they didn't like speaking in public, they had trouble articulating their thoughts, um, and the thing was, they were, they were nurturing, sympathetic, empathic people. Oh, I got you. And within the context of the congregation, that personality type was such that people said, you know, you'd make a great pastor because you really care a lot about people and mm -hmm. you're really great at teaching Sunday school and you always lead the women's Bible studies, so forth and so on. That that was confused for, well, you're good at all the tools of the trade, so just go take up the trade. Is that a little bit of projection? Like, this is the kind of pastor we wish we had? <laughs> yes, I think so, 100%. Yeah. It's it's like when they uh, someone says to you after church, Pastor, I really like that sermon. It was a great sermon, but could you maybe include some more application for the Christian life at the end of your sermons? Give us something to leave church to you know with. I just wasn't quite feeling it, <laughs> right? And then the next guy comes in for the interview, and the first one of the first things they ask is, uh, "Can we see a sample of your sermon?" Oh, really? I've never had and, anybody ask me oh, that. Sure. <clears throat> really? Yeah. That's interesting. That's I would, interesting. Yeah, I would have every interview. I every interview I had before I, I came to St. John's. That was either I had to preach mm -hmm. for the call committee, or they wanted to see my sermon. Okay. A sermon. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. 
Shout out to Appleberry Kombucha by Hum. Sold exclusively at Target. Yep. Sponsor me, Hum. Sponsor me. We're trying. We're trying. I need those cases. I need pallets. Pallets of kombucha. (laughs) I think that's really the secret to monetizing a podcast. Mm -hmm. Just is one. You start the podcast so that you can get people to give you the things that you like for free. (laughs) Or maybe just make products that are actually good on their own. And then they just use them on the TV show or podcast or whatever. And you don't even have to pay for ads. I agree. That's a great idea. Uh, Post script uh, anybody who uh, is involved with bjj or martial arts mm. send me shirts <laughs> you'll wear them on <laughs> the show that i'll wear them on the podcast <laughs> that's when we're gonna have to start talking about uh video cameras and uh mm. doing youtube like the joe rogan experience and others let's not go crazy but, um, yeah going crazy going full video no i think we need to reach at least 12,000 views, 10 to 12,000 uh, views before I would want to do that. Because you'd have am, to like... I am not photogenic. I don't know. How hard is it? <laughs> That's true. Just add a, add a add a filter to the lens. Exactly. Just put it in black and white, high contrast. and <laughs> Right. One of those soft lenses they used to use back in the 70s. Oh, yeah. So it's, <laughs> so it's like a bad romance film. Oh, no. Right. And little Zamfir in the pan flute <laughs> for the soundtrack. and. Uh, <laughs> Um, rocking that pan flute. If I were quick, I'd pull up a sample, but no. I'm not that Oh, guy. no, you don't need to. You can just link it. Zamfir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was... I, I remember Zamfir and the pan flute from my grandma because oh, my. that was a commercial that was on during Lawrence Welk. Zamfir Christmas is on iTunes. Oh. There you go. <laughs> oh, it's a little out of season, but uh, yeah, anyway. It's never a bad time to listen to Zamfir. I just, I, f- I figured he'd be gone by now. I'm trying to think what w- wasn't he featured on Pulp? Um, Kill Bill, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Kill Bill. He was in the first Kill Bill Part One. They, one. They had, That's right. Didn't they have? That's right. They have Zamfir they on that did. one. I got it right here. Yeah. Yep. When during the fight, right at the end of the fight. Uh, after he, after she disposes with the uh, the 88. I guess. And they're in know. the uh, snow garden. I think it's then. Somewhere like that. I can't remember the movie anymore. It's been so long. How dare you, sir? (laughs) (laughs) Just just two tones. Should I include it or not? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, this is it. The Lonely Shepherd. The Lonely Shepherd. Yep. (laughs) You can't not listen to them fear and not start whistling. Um, You just can't. It's recorded from the Notre Dame Cathedral. It's haunting. Yeah. It is beautiful in small doses. <laughs> but it's not usually what we do on this show. So. No, no, it's not. But it was there. Okay. So, yeah. So, anyways. So, Heidelberg, for me, was an introduction to Lutheranist theology. And... Right back. Right back to it. That's how we do it, baby. But uh, everything's tied to an elastic bow around here. It always snaps back. But uh, I think that's the thing. It's been almost 20 years now. It has been 20 years since I started reading Luther. Mm. And to this day, really, the the Heidelberg Disputation is something that I'll go back to over and over again. We were talking before the show that, uh, and at least in my whatever Lutheran upbringing, we went from the from the 95 Theses and just skipped everything up until the catechisms as if none of that happened. 
So I never really encountered Heidelberg. Yeah. Didn't even know it existed except for... Well, and I wonder the, if that's not necessarily indicative of Lutheranism in general as it is a kind of parochialism about Luther's works. Mm. Because about the turn of the... Or right before the turn of the last century, there was a movement... that It had been going on for a while, but there was a movement called liberal Protestantism. And within that, going all the way back to Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was really the first person to systematize the Trinity and... He divided up the Trinity into a class on the Father, a class on the Son, and a class on the Holy Spirit. And then we, from there, we all started breaking down doctrine that way. Oh, yeah. And, and dividing doctrine up into the curriculum, you know, what part of the curriculum, what year in the seminary curriculum will the students be expected to learn this doctrine or that doctrine and so forth. And that became very popular. And obviously, to this day, uh, seminary curriculums are still yeah. organized that way. Yeah, I try to limit the, the work part. of the... Of- of God to just one person of the Trinity, as if they're not they're they're not right. cooperative. So if or we're going to spend twelve weeks on the second person of the Trinity, we can't even talk about creation. Yeah, and let's not certainly not talk about the work of the Spirit. Right, which is interesting. It, with the book that we're going to be reading today begins with this conversation about the Heidelberg Disputation and about how the same God who died on the cross is the God who created and is a part of His creation, and therefore it's an unnatural unorganic move to cut the Trinity into pieces. And if you don't think it's a small thing, then this is what I mean is Luther never separates Jesus from creation. Yeah. In the way that we do as moderns and postmoderns because of the way in which Schleiermacher and Kant and Hegel and the and the liberal Protestants that came after them did. That's kind of and the reason I bring this up is not only in, in that direction of how it's really made us into functional modalists. Mm-hmm. But they did it to Luther, and they chopped Luther up into young Luther, middle-aged Luther, and old Luther because the liberal Protestants really liked young Luther. Mm. They liked the the fiery evangelical reformer. They didn't like anything from the catechism onward because they felt that that was Luther being too Catholic, too, well, too Catholic, too systematic, that he was trying to organize the Reformation, and that that's really when Luther stopped being Luther for them. Uh. And so to this day, then, you will still hear this echoing because people will say, well, I don't like that because that's young Luther, or I don't like that, that's old Luther. As if Luther can be chopped up into three phases or three stages of his life, and there's no continuity there, or very little. Mm. When you read the Heidelberg Disputation and then go read, for example, the Genesis lectures at the end of his life, he references his own lectures in the Genesis lectures. He references the bondage of the will in the Genesis lectures ah. and and so on. So it's no small thing that we chop him up into first, second, and third article Luther. One, that's a very recent move. Two, it's in order to domesticate and bring Luther to heel. And what it ultimately does then, much like chopping up the Trinity, is it doesn't allow us to see Luther as a whole. Did we talk about it? Did we talk about it on this show, or was it the previous podcast? Or not episode? That other show. Uh, <laughs> that other podcast. that other podcast where uh, we talked about uh, Doctor Nagel would always have you cite the year or the work in the year, right? Which Luther? Yeah, and he did that, but he wasn't doing that to distinguish as if there were three different Luthers, like there are three different mm-hmm. Isaiahs or something. Um, but, but more because. Uh, it was important to see where where Luther was in his trajectory, you know, in his development. Yes, very much so. And to me, 
when Luther shows up at Heidelberg in 1518 and says what he says, those theses, and that's another reason I think that the Heidelberg is so accessible for people. It's like little candies. Mm. They're theses. So you have theses one, theses two, and onward. And even if you're not familiar with Luther, you can read those theses. You can read one and walk away. And then, of course, he has the glosses at the end. Mm-hmm. So he kind of goes deeper into each thesis that way. And then the philosophical stuff. And that's the nice thing about Heidelberg and those theses, much like the catechism. Or like what we did with Walther. See, um, what was that? Long Gospel. Right. right? Yeah, Long Gospel lectures. What did we do? Did we do Theses 25? 39th lecture. 39th lecture, 25, I think, was the yeah. thesis. Yeah. yeah. That it's it's helpful for those who may not be familiar with Luther or aren't versed in theological language, however it may come out, to take a thesis. The law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, does not advance man on his way to salvation, but rather hinders him. Thesis one. And you can just take that and chew on that. There's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can even read about what Luther is doing at Heidelberg and how controversial that statement is to the monks gathered that day. It was supposed to be a polite debate amongst uh, his monastic order. That's what they did every year. That's their kind of convention um, formula, format. And he gets up and just drops bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb and walks away from the lectern. And that, that is, historically speaking, the beginning of the Reformation. Not just in Germany, but in Europe. Because the people that left there that day either hated him so much they wanted him burned, or they were so on board with what he had said in his theses, they went back to their churches and they started the Reformation in their own hometowns. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like it's and, kind of like what we talked about with the Beatles, you know, that they they had how many albums come out over a span of 10 years? I don't remember. We right. went over that and the development was rapid fire. And you think how, how different yeah. Luther was from 1517 to 1518. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, right. It wasn't. It was a Radically transformation different. overnight. You know. Yeah. You read the Romans lectures and then read the Heidelberg. Uh, the difference in his thinking is is so marked. I think and mm-hmm. so distinct. You read the Romans lectures. There's still tendrils of his training mm-hmm. there. You can still hear him using late medieval Roman Catholic terms in the way in which they're defined by the late medieval Roman Catholic Church. But by 1518, when he gets to Heidelberg, he has pretty much all but rejected it. Or at least, especially in regards to Augustine and Augustinian theology, he has taken what he needs and thrown the rest away, which at that time is verboten. That's heresy, Mr. Luther. Mm -hmm. And between 1518 then and 1521, you get to the Magnificat and so forth. It's another huge jump. You go to 1525. It's an enormous jump from the Heidelberg to the bondage of the will. Yeah. But then within three years, he writes the small catechism. Yeah. And that was and, ba- and that was based on the visitations, right? The Saxon visitation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That comes out of the Saxon which, visitation. Which was a, kind of a life-changing event for him, it seems. Huge. Because he left academia. He left the monastery and saw the real state of the church. Mm-hmm. And it was it was... I was talking with someone the other day about this too, that it's it's one thing to say you're a bad parent mm-hmm. and be self-effacing, self-reflective, self-aware. It's another thing when, you're, when your kids go, oh yeah, you're a bad parent. <laughs> Ouch. It's, it's one thing for you to say it, but it's another thing for someone else to affirm it. Right. And it just goes to show how we, we use self-criticism to protect ourselves from actual criticism. Hmm. At least in the Midwest, it's a very passive-aggressive form of complimenting. 
that I say something bad about myself and then you say, oh, no, 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 you're not a bad parent. You're a wonderful parent. And then you list off my virtues. It's a, it is a fixed, cemented in place, long, you're shaking your head. Oh, I know. Just <laughs> in pain. Uh, it is a culturally accepted tradition that I feel you feel all fish this for tension rising. <laughs> <laughs> Perma shrug. I'm trying to, trying to get it out. Uh. It is cultural. And you, you read Luther and you see the amount of criticism coming at Luther. Mm-hmm. And yet when he goes and visits, visits these churches, <laughs> it's, well, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was this bad. Right. I didn't expect this. I didn't expect there to be holes in the parsonage and pastors that had holes in their socks and couldn't afford to buy food for themselves. And congregations are barely full, you know, barely filled on Sunday morning because people no longer come to church because they're free in Jesus now. Well, they don't, they didn't even know that the, the priests didn't even know what they were saying. They didn't even know Latin. No. 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 Most of them, many of them, were illiterate. They had memorized the words of the Mass at the seminary and just repeated them ad nauseum. It's just performance art at that point. And the people (laughs) were illiterate for the most part, too. Yeah. So it's not like the people could stand up and say, hey, I don't think you know what you're doing. But, uh, yeah. So reading the Heidelberg as an introduction to Luther, I think, is a great place to start. And like I said, you can take Luther in bite-sized chunks. You don't have to read them all at once, like maybe the Galatians commentary from 1535. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Which he thought he was dying, and so he treated that that set of lectures as his last will and testament. Mm. And if Luther does have a systematic theology, it is his greater Galatians commentary, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, because he, he just lets everything out in those lectures. Yeah, holds no punches. And Pulls no punches because he had had a stroke. Plague had gone through Wittenberg for the umpteenth time. He's got um, whatever his tinnitus, his bowel he's condition was. He's got ulcers. Yeah. His bowel condition is famous. He was a mess. It's amazing he lived as long as because it was did, another uh, ten years, right? To yeah. forty-eight. Yeah, didn't he live till forty nineteen uh, eighteen whatever it 40, was fifteen forty-six forty-six? Okay, yeah, fifteen forty-six. Yeah, so eleven years. Hmm. So the point being, then don't. Don't make the mistake of liberal Protestantism of chopping him up into bite-sized chunks or manageable chunks early, later, mid-Luther. No, don't do that. Just read Luther for Luther and then go with him. Right. And and pay attention to how he changes. And yet, theologian of the cross, theologian of the glory, he drops those terms after 1518, but the language that he uses to describe what they are, right. that remains. Yeah, it's a- because that's the language of God, hidden revealed, law, gospel, old Adam, new man in Christ— left and right-handed kingdoms. It's all all the language of the theologian of the cross, all the language that Luther uses in the Heidelberg Disputation gets fleshed out. Mm. It, it, he expands upon it. And he makes references back to those things throughout his career. Mm. Likewise, be careful with the Trinity. Don't chop the Trinity up into three pieces. Yeah, right. It'll get confusing for you, especially in relation to creation. Well, and they, the liberals have a... Oh, I don't know, an out with Luther in the catechism, right? Where creator, redeemer, mm-hmm. sanctifier, those headings, which weren't meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> to say that the... Right. Uh, it's just meant for the children to help uh, just try to understand the chief. Hang your hat on. It's something to hang yeah. your hat on so that you don't have to swallow the whole turkey at once. Mm, there you go. You know, it's a drumstick here and a leg there and a little breast meat over here and then you've got the creed. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with you so far, but... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, Just sometimes you got to hold on to the dash because... The creed is Thanksgiving dinner. Well, 
It is. It really is. So today, tonight, this evening, tomorrow, whenever you're listening to this, our, our human animal hybrid overlords in the future, mm-hmm. we are going to read a book that uh, I have to rubber band because the spine is so broken that all the pages are loose and just fall out when I pick it up. It is Faith Victorious, an Introduction to Luther's Theology by Leonard Pinema. One of the reasons I like this book is because Pinema's not German. <laughs> It's nice to get a non-continental doesn't theologian that, every once in a doesn't while. Doesn't that open them up to suspicion right away, though? Automatically. Uh, amongst our crowd, I suppose. Amongst the LCMS crowd. I was talking with our friend John Plus about this because Professor Plus uses this book mm-hmm. and references this book. And that's what he said, too, is it's not German, and therefore it is immediately suspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe it's easy to just say, oh, Pinamas sounds like Monomas, so it's probably the same thing, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, no. In fact, Pinema is a corrective to Monerma, if you want to go down that path. Um, but to read, In Faith, Victorious Leonard Pinema presents a highly lucid and penetrating discussion of some of the major themes in the theology of the great reformer. Numerous quotations from Luther himself enliven the treatment of such subjects as revelation, predestination, justification, the ministry, and the sacraments. In addition to presenting the results of his own research, the author provides skillful resumes of studies on such controversial problems with and emphases as the bondage of the will, the wrath of God, the spirit and the word, marriage, vocation, and the church and state. Throughout his book, Pinema is concerned to show the existential character of faith and Luther's understanding and how that is determinative for all that is involved in being a Christian. Pinema was professor of theology at the University of Helsinki in Finland, Widely known in ecumenical circles for his Luther research, Pinema wrote this book as a result of a series of lectures he delivered at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago and Luther Seminary, St. Paul, Minnesota. And this was published... When was this That's published? what I was going to ask. Leo Nart. I'm turning to the front. Nart, not Leo... Leonard. It is uh, 2001. Really? This book is a translation from the Finnish published in 1959. Ah, uh, that's right. Okay. Copyright 1963... This edition, 2001. There you go. So published in 1959, copyrighted in English in 63, and then my edition came in the 2000s, early 2000s. I don't... I like Pinema. As I said, he's a corrective to that Finnish school of Lutheran theology, which essentially engaged in revisionist history to not get into the weeds with this stuff. Mm -hmm. But what they essentially did is they found some letters that Luther and the Lutherans at Wittenberg wrote to the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oh, yeah. And what they were trying to do, or what they were trying to do is... To find out if there was any points of unity between the Lutherans in Wittenberg and the Eastern Orthodox. And obviously they would do that since the Roman Catholics wanted to burn them to the ground. But what they found is that there was no place for them to make that effort in the end. That theologically they were just too far apart on the matter of justification, the sacraments and so forth. For them to really have any legitimate dialogue with the Eastern Orthodox. Don't they try to hang a hat on the fact that uh, Melanchthon sent a Greek translation of the Augsburg Confession to the Patriarch and didn't get a response. But but anyway, it's like, oh, well, that just proves that that we were trying to reconcile with the East as well. Right. Well, what happened with the Finnish School of Lutheran Theology, and it was a popular movement in the 90s and then petered out, is I I think it was very much a charismatic movement. There were a few key points like Monerma and others, or key points, key authors, key theologians that were really driving it. Mm-hmm. Essentially what it boils down to is they took Luther and they tried to turn Luther into a progressive sanctificationist, meaning ah, yes. that we, by obedience to the law, through the help of the Spirit or grace, 
through the strengthening of the sacraments, which, you know, the sacraments enable and empower us to keep the law, obey the law. And that through obedience to the law, we grow in holiness. And that essentially we become more and more like Jesus, the more obedient to the law we are yeah. and the more we walk in the spirit, which it's not there in Luther unless you read it into Luther. Hmm. Like I said, I've spent 20 years reading Luther. I find no evidence of it. I've wrestled with the Finnish theologians and Monarma in particular. I was made to do that for my doctoral studies. I listened to the lectures, read the books. There's nothing that compels me to say that the Finns had hmm. anything legitimate to argue in, in the direction they were going. And I think that's why it petered out eventually. Yeah. Because even the quote-unquote liberal Protestants couldn't go with them where they were going. But you're welcome, listeners, to go check that out. Monarma has many things out there you can read. Um, He's kind of the chief guy, right? I'm, he is the, yeah, really the, the the figurehead for that movement, the Finnish school and or Finnish Lutheran movement. And the thing is, when you read it, it's somewhat difficult because it's like watching ancient aliens on <laughs> the History Channel. Yeah. Is they'll take a text that you're familiar with, like the Heidelberg Disputation or something else, Galatians Commentary, and then all of a sudden say, this proves that Luther was in favor of this, this theology. Infant communion or something, uh, right? Infant communion, exactly. Yeah. Much like in Ancient Aliens, they'll say the pyramids, blah, 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 secondary source, blah, 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 Roanoke Island, aliens. <laughs> and A radiation. Yeah, if you, <laughs> right. If, if you make some big jumps in logic, sure, hmm. you can do that. But uh, not. it's not legit hmm. in the hmm. end. So, I don't know. Tuomo Monarma. There we go. Tuomo. That was his first name, Tuomo. So back to Pinoma. But back to Pinoma. So Pinoma, because he was Finnish, but he predates this whole movement by a generation. Right. Uh, um, he often gets lumped in with the Finnish school and uh, Monoma and so forth. Uh, Finnish interpretation of Luther is what it was referred to as. Professor Monoma in the 80s introduced this way of reading Luther and reading the Bible, uh, in, specifically in, matter, in the matter of doctrine of justification. Oh, okay. And that it affects righteousness in his theology of salvation. His just, you know, theology of just, Basically, he takes Luther's understanding of Christ present to us through faith, and then the early church fathers' understanding of divination. Mm-hmm. And then kind of smashes them together, mashes them up into a mixtape. <laughs> yeah. And essentially what justification becomes in the end is a way for us to become like Jesus. Uh-huh. Because what happens is that the divine nature of Jesus dwells within us through faith and that that divine nature changes us. And so we become essentially less sinful and more saintly as we progress. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, well, it also helped the Lutherans and Reform get along with each other especially on matters regarding the Lord's Supper. And it contributed a lot to the joint doc, uh, declaration on the doctrine of justification between Lutherans and Roman Catholics in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So essentially what the Finnish school did is it just allowed Lutherans to be reformed. That was a motivation because joint declaration was part of that. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it all kind of came out of that. I was there. I was a witness. And in the end, like I said in the last podcast, I think it it forced a confession out of me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And that's why I don't have any patience whatsoever for any Lutheran theologian who pushes that stuff today. Yeah. Because it's just reform it's reformed theology masquerading as Lutheran theology. And just because you use Lutheran language doesn't make you a Lutheran theologian. It just makes you a bad reformed theologian. Hmm. 
Mm. I was talking with a friend of mine a couple of days ago about this because he left Calvary Chapel to become a Lutheran pastor. Really? And oh, he bristles at this stuff because he left the Calvary Chapel. He left this kind of theology. So when he hears it coming out of Lutheran's mouths, he raises his hand and says, hey, um, I left this stuff for a reason. I don't need to hear it in the Lutheran church. <laughs> and I think that's the thing, going back to what you asked earlier about the pre-seminary students becoming, uh, you know, going into other vocations is if, for those of us who came into Luth- the Lutheran Church from outside the Lutheran Church, who became Lutheran because we read Luther, I think we're highly suspect of anything that doesn't sound Lutheran, hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I don't mean Lutheran in the sense of cultural Lutheranism. I mean in the sense of Reformation Lutheran theology. Hmm. And just because you're Lutheran in the present tense doesn't mean that you are a child of that theology. You might be a child of the Reformation, like we've talked about in the past, but that doesn't mean you're a child of the Reformation theology. And one of the reasons for this podcast is that very thing, that concern that every generation has to ask itself the question, I believe, why are we Lutheran? Mm -hmm. And own whatever happens, whatever comes out of that conversation, you have to own that for good and ill. And to ask the question, are we Reformation Lutherans anymore? Are we children of the Protestant, liberal Protestant movement? Right. Are we children of some sort of hybrid Lutheran reformed movement? What are we in the present tense? Because the Lutherans in the 1500s at Wittenberg fell into this trap where they were hiring reformed theologians to teach on the faculty who claimed they were Lutheran, mm. who signed off on the paper that said, I, I swear an oath to adhere to the Lutheran confessions and teach what the Lutheran confessions teach. And then slowly but surely they changed it and it became more and more Calvinist. And we had all of these controversies then in the 1580s and in the 1600s mm-hmm. and the 1700s and the 1800s. <laughs> well, there's a, and isn't, it, isn't there a danger kind of doing theology by branding? <laughs> so, right. I mean, it can be helpful to distinguish between, you know, different, you know, right. faith groups. But. Well, right. Just because we use the same word doesn't mean we have the same definition for that word. Mm. And one of the things they discovered during the Lutheran Roman Catholic dialogues in the 90s was that they had agreed to not define justification, but to use the word. Right. And therefore, they were, they were able in the end to come to a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification because they never bothered to define justification. And as Heiko Obermann said in a famous lecture at that time, in 500 years, the Roman Catholic teaching on justification has not changed. Nope. So why are we signing this document Hmm. saying that we have now moved past the Reformation dispute about justification and we are now in full agreement about what justification is and what it isn't? We haven't even defined it yet. Yeah. It was kind of like we were talking, oh, maybe we weren't talking about on the show. I don't know. In some contexts that uh, justification is not the center of Roman theology and and it isn't of modern, you know, liberal Lutheranism either. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. they can just kind of push that off to the side because that's not the essential mm-hmm. agreement that's needed. Right. Well, And we always get nervous when we start talking about justification because it pushes out good works. It pushes out our participation in salvation. It pushes out what we can earn and, and the punishments that we can work towards avoiding. Mm-hmm. It just takes away our free will. Yeah. And biblically speaking, that's because there's only one person who has free will, and that's God. And in the end, that's why we want free will, because we want to be God. You will be like God if you eat this. 
<clears throat> and and I've said before that the the proof that God alone has free will is that I'm like God knowing good and evil, but when I get in trouble, I cannot get myself out of it, mm. especially in regards to my salvation. When it, when it comes to sin, death, and the devil, I don't have the power to fight the devil. I don't have the power to overcome death. That when we assume that we have even a, a sliver of free will, yeah. what we're really just trying to do is take over for God. Mm-hmm. And say, we got this. And that's Luther's starting point. I'll call you if I need you. (laughs) Right. Luther's whole starting point for his theology is God has free will and we don't, Mm. which is in the Heilberg Disputation. Free will after the fall exists in name only. But doesn't that make you a robot? it does what it can, it commits a mortal sin. Right. Aren't you just a block of wood? Aren't you just a pawn on a chessboard? Mm. No. In relation to your neighbor, (laughs) commandments four through ten, you have some limited will. You have some limited choice. But the fact that we argue for it just goes to show <laughs> how we reject justification and as a consequence, we reject selfless love. Yeah. Because love that is selfless doesn't ask how much choice it has. It just does what's necessary for the beloved. And if you want to know how this works, what this sounds like, just come to my house at about 6.30 in the morning when I'm trying to get my kids ready for hmm. school. And my baby wants to eat and the dogs are begging to go outside to go to the bathroom and it's just chaos. Hmm. Unless it's a snow now day, ask me, right? Unless it's a snow day. And then ask me about free will. Mm. <laughs> ask me about my choices. Ask me about my beloved. But it, it is the way it is. And so to, to segue quickly at the 41-minute mark, Pastor Gillespie, we are tuned up this week. Um, to introduce my pretty much my favorite article in the Formula Concord, which is the article on election, and one of my favorite things ever, the bondage of the will, to help our listeners out, because we're going to be in chapter four of Pinnum's book on predestination, is, and the other thing too is Pinnum's book is an introduction to Luther's theology, and so it is an overview, it's a survey, ah, yeah. and he's really good at giving you the quotes that matter. Mm. For me, this is a big deal. Yeah. There are lots of books about Luther or, or cover certain aspects of Luther's theology. But for me, the testament of whether or not a book is a really good Luther book or not, or just a good theology book in general, is how much do you quote the primary author and in, in the primary sources? And that can, that and can get a little obsessive that, sometimes, right? It can, but this goes to my point too. Bayer does this really well. Oswald Bayer is... It's not just that you quote the author, but the quotes that you pull out of the author that summarize the work that you're talking about. There's a real art to that. It is a science, but there's a real art to being able to read something, especially the long stuff, and be able to pull quotes out that summarize whole chunks of the primary work of the author so that the reader can say, I I really have a, a grasp now on what Luther meant and what he was talking about and what his text was about in this area. Right. And I like Pinema for that reason. And again, read everything with a filter. But my criteria for why I like this book for Pinema is I can give this to a lay member of my church. And I know that when they read it, they'll be able to grasp what Pinema is trying to communicate to them about Luther. Right. And what they don't get, I can sit down with them and read in and through the book with them. And further break it down. But what I, before we start in chapter four on predestination, I want to break down the difference between Luther and the Augustinian Calvinist tradition. Okay. Because this is a big deal when it comes to predestination, obviously. So a little background. And your point about are we, are we just a block of wood? Are we just a pawn? We don't have free will. 
So for Augustine and for Calvin, predestination happens before creation. It's pre-creation stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is the hidden will of God that it happened before creation. Therefore, it's not in the Bible explicitly. It's all in the hidden. Um, it's in the hidden counsel of God. That's what it is. The hidden counsel of God. And that after creation, we have some free will in relation to godly things, divine things. And that the reason that we're given some free will in relation to God and in relation to our neighbor is because the reason we're put on earth is to be tried and tested by the law. And then Christ is primarily our example to ah, follow. Okay. So before creation, God divided us up into sheep and goats. And depending on how, whether you go all the way into double predestination or a kind of Arminian understanding of predestination, where we have some choice, the point being is that you're put on earth and the reason that you have some free will is because this is a test. And you're being tested by your ability to obey the law, the Ten Commandments. And therefore, what is the purpose of Jesus? What is the purpose of the word being born, dying for us, rising from the dead? To serve as an example of how to live a godly, that is, obey the Ten Commandments kind of life. It seems a lot like purgatory, except uh, not after death. Earthly. (laughs) Yeah, before death. Yeah, well, another theologian said that about modern Protestantism, that modern Protestantism took this, and, and we talked about this, I think, in the last episode, that modern Protestantism and late medieval Catholicism are essentially the same yeah. in that they both draw from Augustine and Calvin. I'm sorry, they draw from Augustine. Modern Protestants draw from Calvin. Obviously, Calvin couldn't draw, you know, blah, 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 time. Um, Calvin was a time traveler. There, you heard it here first. Yeah, wibbly wobbly. <laughs> wibbly wobbly. That's why Calvin's theology sounds so much like late medieval theology, because he went backwards in time and rewrote theology. No, that, that late medieval Catholicism is Augustinian. All of Western Catholicism is Augustinian. And Calvinin is the foremost scholar in the area of Augustine. He is a true Augustinian scholar. And modern Protestantism comes from Calvin. So therefore, it's coming out of this. It's the, it's the same family tree. Yeah. Versus Luther, he essentially chopped himself off of that branch, cut himself free of that tree. So for Luther, when it comes to predestination, one, he doesn't like the term predestination because it's a loaded word. Therefore, he much he would much rather use the term election. Mm, yeah. That God chooses you in Christ. He elects to choose you. He elects to be your savior, your father, so forth. So then God isn't making decisions about who are sheep and who are goats before creation in a hidden way, but rather he is electing you at Calvary in a revealed way. Mm. And that Calvary, not pre-creation, is the center of all history. There is no free will then in relation to divine things. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for you. And that we were put on earth not to be tested by the law, but to be loved by God. And therefore, Christ is sacrament primarily. So think about the distinction then for you as a Christian <laughs> in the pew on Sunday. Yeah, right. If your pastor teaches in his sermons and in the Bible study that the primary purpose of life is to obey the law because this is a test and Jesus is your example of how to live a godly life versus... God's will for you is revealed at Calvary by the crucified Jesus, and it turns out you have no free will. The purpose of your life is to be loved by God, and that Jesus is primarily a sacrament. Yeah, which is why the the formula says that this doctrine is given for our comfort, right? Exactly. Not not to terrify us with our our lack of obedience to the Ten Commandments, 
but but to yes. comfort us in the in the salvation that, that was won for us at the cross. Right. Uh-huh. So for Luther, this is the distinction then. For him, the hidden God, where God chooses not to be preached, revealed, and worshipped, that's the God who drives us to repent <laughs> and to turn to where God is revealed at the cross in Christ. Yeah. So that if you leave the cross and say, I'm going to go find God, a better God, the God that's more to my liking, a God that's powerful and attractive and slick, all you're going to run into is the God of Augustine and Calvin, the God who before creation decided, I'm going to put you on earth to test you. And depending on how you do on the test, how you use the little bit of free will I give you, how you follow Jesus's example, that's going to be the judge of whether or not you get into heaven. Mm. Versus Luther who says, Jesus on the cross is God revealing himself to us in a specific way. That is, you have no free will. God chose to be crucified. That's why Jesus says, right, um, whatever is put into my hand, I have not lost. I've not lost the grip on that. Mm-hmm. Or he, like he says to Pilate, if I want to, dude, I could snap my fingers and an army of angels would crush you right now. Like this is, I've chosen to do this. You have no choice. You have to do this. Therefore, Christ is sacrament. Christ is gift. Yeah. And in, in the gospels, that's reiterated by the the fact that he says, my time has not yet come. As in it was, it was preordained. Yeah. Right. Exactly. At the appointed time. Mm-hmm. Who appointed that time? God did. Mm-hmm. The fu- when the fullness of time had come. We, we broke this down in confirmation now that we started our, our unit on the Lord's Supper is there's only two ways to worship God. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast because I teach this in the adult Bible study constantly. So they get it deep, deep in their head. This is a distinction you need to pay attention to. There's either sacrificial worship or sacramental worship. Uh, yes. And there's, there's no other kind of worship available to us. Mm-hmm. Sacrificial worship is from us to God. Sacramental worship is from God to us. Sacramental worship is particularly Lutheran, sacrificial worship is not. Yeah. And the part of the problem with that distinction is that some people would say, well, the New Testament is sacramental, Old Testament sacrificial. Mm-hmm. And uh, Because which, you've artificially cut them into two pieces. Exactly. And it, I mean, if you read carefully, um, God you know, constantly is attaching blessings to a, a sacrifice, right? Right. But the, the purpose well, is not Zephaniah. to make the sacrifice. The purpose is to receive the blessing. <laughs> Right. In Zephaniah, the very first line, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. Hmm. That's Jesus, people. He is the word of the Lord. And in that very first chapter, I think in verses 7 and 8, God says not only will he provide the sacrifice, but that he will separate out a people for himself to receive the sacrifice. That he actually says he is not only the sacrificer, but he is the sacrifice. Hmm. And this is a key point in understanding the whole Old Testament, that the sacrifice is the word and the sacrificer is the word. So where's your free will? Yeah. <laughs> the answer for Luther was, you have none. Yeah, start to finish. It's, it's God's work. And this is very practical stuff, as you pointed out. When we talk about predestination in a Calvinist Augustinian sense, it terrifies us. That's how you recognize it. When we talk about election in a Lutheran sense, it's for your comfort. Mm-hmm. That's how you recognize the difference between a Lutheran and a Calvinist on this matter of election predestination. It's interesting, because I think modern Calvinists are starting to... to to recognize this, at least I've heard, uh, like on White Horse Inn, mm-hmm. I've, heard, I've heard them speak, well, no, we can't talk about election unless we start with Jesus. We start at the cross. You're like, yeah, uh, that's not classical <laughs> reformed thinking about election. Right, right? correct. So, it, it's, it's, like re, it, it's like the Rocky franchise or something <laughs> <laughs> that taken on its own merits, it, 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 it gets progressively worse. Yeah. But then you, you watch Creed and you're like, oh, okay. I like that. That's good. That's a good 
taking the franchise and bringing it forward and introducing something new to it. I thought Rocky Balboa was okay, Uh, but Creed was better. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what the Calvinists are doing. They're just in the Creed stage of their their relationship. They just end up being Lutheran then. Yeah, eventually. I mean, Lutherans have ended up being Calvinists for long enough. It's time for them to come (laughs) over to our side of the street. (laughs) You know, it's a little give and take here. That's right. So, no, there there can be no, quote-unquote, baptizing or Lutheranizing the Calvinist Augustinian teaching on predestination and making it Lutheran. You just can't do it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. You just can't. Mm-hmm. And you know when someone's trying to do it for the reasons that we just described. Yeah. It won't bring you no comfort. Mm. It just won't. It'll make you smug, maybe, <laughs> in the sense that you know you're chosen or you're holy or you're sanctified and others are not. Right. But that's not a Lutheran approach to this. Yeah, because... The Lutheran approach to election is... Jesus died for you. I, I thought of how, how they would say it. They would say, well, you, no, you don't need to be terrified because look, you're a church. Uh, look, you know, you're, yes, you're exactly. hearing God's word. So you, you, pre- you, so, you. So you must be elect. And you're saying, well, yeah, but you're still looking at yourself, <laughs> right? For your election. Exactly. exactly. Uh-huh. And even a, a seven-year-old child knows this mm. because I ask them and they do know. Yeah. So... Page 27 of Pinoma, Predestination, Chapter 4. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have written in my notes, free will for Luther is original sin. That is to be like God. Mm-hmm. So it's good to know I haven't changed on some things in over 20 years. Or 18 change. years since I wrote that. Change, exactly. How many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> uh. change? What? No, it, if it, only it, that were we true, actually. <laughs> Because first we have to draft a, a memorial for it. That's and right. Collect the funds. It has to go to con- yeah, we have to go to convention and we have to vote on it. Uh, <laughs> then we'll table it. <laughs> then right. we'll assemble a we special to committee research. to uh, find out bulb types. More and... research on the light bulb. Yeah, that's that's right. right. Exactly. We have to determine whether this is a, a Lutheran uh, socket or not. <laughs> did a did a Calvinist build this house? Do we really want to use Lutheran light bulbs in this Calvinist house? Mm. But I digress into Mm (laughs) self-parody. The contrast between the true Luther and the traditional Luther is sharpest at the point of the understanding of free will. Well, there you go. The issue has to do with the matter of preparation for grace. Dispositio ad gratium. Mm -hmm. Preparation for grace. Is there anything man can do to prepare himself to receive grace? Hmm. In answering this question negatively, Luther wrote in... Assertio omnium articulorum in 1520, referring to the Pope, you argue that free will can prepare for the reception of grace. But Christ says, contrarywise, that such a thing is rejected, increasing the distance between man's possibilities and grace. Uh, so this would be kind of like saying, well, we want God to set our hearts on fire, so we have to figure out how to dry out our firewood. Yeah. You know. Essentially, what does prevenient grace do? Mm. Oh, so that's Pre- right, different graces. The grace that gets exactly. you ready, and then the grace that is yep. is forgiveness, salvation. Gets you going, and the grace that keeps you going, and the grace that oh, yeah. pulls you along, oh, and the grace that catches you when you fall. And that's right. It's the Baskin-Robbins of grace. <laughs> How many really flavors? Is. Seven to 31. Is that what it is? I can't Depending. Remember. Depending. 31 flavors, and then some. Oh, is that how Ani DeFranco reference, deep. Oh, Speaking of the 90s. <laughs> yeah. What was that little plastic castle? You must have had a girlfriend that listened to it. Okay. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> that was my Pantera phase. So, yes, I had a girlfriend who listened to Ani Franco. 
So can you prepare for the reception of grace? That's the question. Prevenient grace, as it's called. Luther says, no, no, you can't. Mm. (laughs) Because, in fact, the very fact that we argue for some sort of free will in relation to grace, in relation to the Spirit, is just us running away from the cross. Running away from justification, running away from God. So, Pinema continues, this same thought is expressed repeatedly in the bondage of the will. Ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. The very opening statement of purpose itself is significant. This is also, by the way, why Formula of Concord 11 quotes the bondage of the will. Right. Because it was the definitive work on the topic. It was the definitive work on the topic. Thus, as they say in the formula, Luther's works, they are a faithful exposition of scripture. So, if you don't like the bondage of the will, tough. Yeah. <laughs> Wrestle with the formula. You want to read more? Go read Bonnets of the Will. Right. Yeah. The very opening statement of purpose itself is significant. In the first part of the book, Bonnage of the Will, Luther quotes Erasmus's definition of free will. Here it is. So, this is what Erasmus says about free will I conceive of free will in this context as a power of the human will by which a man may apply himself to those things that lead to eternal salvation or turn away from the same. Ouch. Therefore, Erasmus provided modern Protestants with the very definition of mm. who they are. Yep. That's their identity. Yep. Make your choice. That's modern, Pro- that's modern Protestantism in a nutshell. Yeah. Free will is the human power, the human power of the will, by which I can apply myself to those things that lead to salvation or to turn away from those things that lead to salvation. Now, they would say God gives you that will, right? Yes, okay. but you still have to accept it. Yeah, but not God, the Holy Spirit, you know, working faith. But it's it's no, no. It's, he it's, knocks, you answer. Yeah, it's just this will is just part of your creaturely nature. Right. And, but it's you're the you're the only one that can exercise it. Well, the best example of this is the painting of Jesus standing at the door. Oh yeah, I've seen that one before. A few times. Do you ever notice in Lutheran churches? Do you ever notice there's no uh, there's no uh, handle on the outside. There, there is none because we don't have any free will. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. There is no handle on the outside because we do have free he will. He has to let I'm you sorry. in. I was, yeah. I was, he can't I was open. being too Lutheran there for a second. Jesus can't open the door into your heart. Jesus can't you open to, the door. To, it only opens from the inside. <laughs> and then, of course, Jesus is out and there's thorns and thistles. But Which is doubly humorous because if you open the door too fast, you're going to hit Jesus in the face. <laughs> no, I think it opens the other way. But anyway. Oh, is that what it is? It swings in. <laughs> sure, of course it does. <laughs> How convenient. Oh, I can think of all sorts of parody video here that would be really funny. Oh, of course, but that that painting in and of itself is a true indicator. If you have this in your church anywhere, then there was definitely a whole generation that was Protestant mm-hmm. because that's what that painting points to is this kind of theology of free will. There's no way you can interpret that painting any other way than we have free will, we have to open the door, because that's the whole reason the painting was made. Mm. I tried really hard. I really did. Because otherwise you have to take it down and then deal with the consequences of removing some sacred art that Grandma donated. It's like my jujitsu instructor says, there's just some techniques you'll get eventually, but this is not one of them right now. (laughs) Just let it go. Just let it go. Yeah. Maybe someday, just not today. So I conceive of free will in this context as a power of the human will by which a man may apply himself to those things that lead to eternal salvation or turn away from them. That's Erasmus. It's a fork in the road. So, exactly. Mm -hmm. Concerning, yeah, exactly. Concerning this definition, Luther says, Erasmus informs us that free will is a power of the human will, which can of itself will choose and not 
choose the word and the work of God, by which it is to be led, to those things that exceed its grasp and comprehension. If it can will, that is, if we can choose or not choose, then we can also choose to love and hate. And if we can choose to love and hate, then we can, in a measure, keep the law and believe the gospel. Because if you can choose or not choose in relation to godly divine things, then it cannot be said that you are not able by that willpower, that will, that choosing of yours to do some part of the work, even though another should prevent your being able to complete the work. All he's saying in, in essence is... Yeah, summarize, please. That you, if we go with Erasmus, you and I have a choice. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a small amount of choice. It's not complete free will, but we have some choice. It's limited, but it's choice. And therefore, if we go to the conclusion of Erasmus's definition here about free will, then you could argue that we can choose to hear the word of God or not hear the word of God. We can choose to have faith or not have faith. We can choose to be justified or not be justified. Now, since death, the cross, and all of the evils of the world are numbered amongst the works of God that lead to salvation, that then means that the human will can also choose its own death and its own damnation. Hmm. Or not. Or not. Yes, it can. It can choose all things when it can will the contents of the word and the work of God. This is Luther being hyperbolic Mm -hmm. and using exclamation points. Nice. What can be anywhere below, above, within, or without the word and work of God except God himself? But what is here left to grace and the Holy Ghost? Yeah. This is plainly to ascribe divinity to what you call the free will. Yeah. And it's it's either, oh, how's it? It's been put in many different ways. But as soon as you start inserting the will into the work of God, the work of God is is really not only kind of uh, sub what do you want to say subverted, but it's also really just unnecessary or or just a, exactly a minor contribution. It really becomes all about you. And this leads to the teaching on limited atonement. Mm-hmm. That Jesus died for you, but you got to finish the work. Yeah. How do you finish the work? Because you have some free will. Well, God's not and your enemy. Isn't that what the cross teaches? Correct. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It's called synteresis in some traditions. That oh, is that after remember. the fall, there was still some spark of divinity left in us. Mm-hmm. And that late medieval Catholicism taught that this is what grace fans into flames, the burning heart of Jesus stuff. That's where that came from. Yes, it does. Right. So total depravity yeah, well, isn't entirely wrong, yeah? <laughs> correct. And We might actually agree on that one, I think. Yeah. We'd call it original sin. They call it total depravity. Right. We call it bondage of the will. Right. And by will, Luther just means what we want, what we choose. Hmm. And as I've said before on this podcast, the simplest definition is your heart always wants something and your mind always justifies what your heart wants. Oh, I'm really good at it. The, Of course. And then we add in what Paul says in Romans 7 and Galatians 6, all your heart ever wills is sin and death. Uh, That's a bummer. So therefore, the very thing that we choose and the only thing that we can choose is sin and death. So that's why I come back to what I said at the beginning. Free will for Luther is original sin. It's to hate God, um, to reject Mm -hmm. Christ, to... (laughs) And to elevate ourselves. to elevate ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So this big block quote Pino pulls out continues, for to will the law and the gospel, to not will sin and to will death is possible for the divine power alone. As Paul says in more places than one, hmm. 1 Corinthians 2.14, 2 Corinthians 3.5. Right. Go look them up. That 
Exactly. To say that I can choose to preach law or gospel, for example, not in the rhetorical grammatical sense, but that I can actually open my Bible, I can read my Bible, and I can determine what is law and what is gospel, and then preach law and gospel, mm-hmm. is to claim that I have some control over God. <laughs> or total control over God. Because what is the law, except that which, the, which sin uses to kill us, and what is the gospel, but that which God uses to give us life. Right. But even Therefore, there, both law and gospel are words of God. Even there, the word of God isn't a tool that we wield for our own aims and purposes, right? Well, that would make the word of God not Jesus. Mm, that's true. Uh, mm. Yeah, let's make him conform <laughs> to what we want. That that makes us basically what Pharisees scribe. This is, I don't know if we, maybe we talked about it in the Walter podcast, but this is why I think we like to talk about law and gospel in the abstract mm-hmm. and not as the word of God. Hmm. Because law and gospel in the abstract, we can define them, we can inject meaning into them, we can argue about them, extrapolate upon them, dissect them. But if the word of God is Jesus, if the law and gospel are God's speaking, then just like the Lord's Supper, it's it ain't yours. You don't get to inject any meaning into it. It that's does probably, what it says. That's probably why it's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way to have do systematic theology where it's like, here's the doctrine and now here's the text that prove it. Right. It, it makes more. It would make more sense to me is to say, here's a text, and from this text, what do we mm-hmm. learn of Jesus, uh, of his work of salvation, of who we are as, as sinners, et cetera, et cetera. You can use the doctrinal categories that way. Think of it this way, too, building on what you just said. Read your Bible, and when you reach a place where you're not sure whether this is law or gospel or what is up, then go to the Lutheran confessions and the church yeah. fathers and our Lutheran fathers. Mm-hmm to help you exegete the text. See what they say about the text. Don't start with the theologian and then go read the Bible. Because you'll read exactly what the theologian tells you it says. Like I tell people, take a Sharpie and cross out all the subheadings in the Bible. They weren't there originally. They just get in the way. And they influence how you read what comes next. That's true. Yeah, even those paragraph breaks, right? That's what I'm saying is that right or wrong, they influence the way that you're thinking. Yeah. So cross them out with a sharpie and just read the text. Why, you know why are we afraid of that? Is it that we're thinking that if we give people a Bible and we say just read it, that you know they might come to false conclusions? Might you know? Yes, might. Yeah. It's it's assuming they have some sort of again will, some sort of choice over the text that they are going to do anything other than violence to the text. Mm-hmm. When that's the whole point of Bible study. The only reason I have Bible study tonight at 7 p.m., the only reason I have Bible study Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. is because we get together to do violence to the text. <laughs> yeah. We are saying you, we are saying to God, we would have you show us Jesus. But we're saying it with torches and pitchforks. Right. But Because we're still old Adams. But as, as it says, it's a sharp two-edged sword, so you end up getting cut up yes. in the process. <laughs> Chopped to pieces. <laughs> and depending on how much you like getting punched in the face... That's how much you're going to go after. Mm-hmm. I was asking uh, my training partners this past week. I said, how do you get used to getting punched? Is there some secret formula other than just you got to get punched? And they both said, no, literally, that's the only way to get used to getting punched and kicked and knee and elbowed is you just got to do it. Yeah. Anticipation and there are just some people <laughs> who, well, there, there are some people who actually do like getting punched and kicked. There are. It's, it's a very small, that's why I say don't. If you're going to get into the striking martial arts, do it for yourself. Don't do it because somebody said it's a great idea. It's not. <laughs> unless you're unless you're super into concussions, it's not a great idea. 
as as I, I have said, I got my cornea cut by a toenail because I got kicked in my eyeball. Yowzers. I don't recommend that for anybody. I And I, I will not put it, it in the show notes, even though I saw it. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Is there are just, and I use this as an example, that not just so that you have to give us $10 because I mentioned martial arts again, that when it comes to that, to, when it comes to the striking martial arts, there is a part of you that has to like violence and like getting punched and kicked. It's just a fact because people that don't like it are going to, they, they do quit. I, these people yeah. come into the gym all the time and they just wilt. And likewise, when we go into the Bible, there's a part of us as old Adams that likes doing violence to God's word, mm. especially if we can do it with a pious, pious face. Yeah. That we go in and we say, I know what this is about. This is about Jesus. Even me as the pastor, when I say Zephaniah is all about Jesus and we're going to find Jesus in this text, that's a statement of we're going to invade the Bible this morning and we are going to force God to give us what we want, whether we like it or not. Now, I as the pastor control the course, the language, Mm. the direction of the conversation for the most part. Because I'm the one up front. I'm the one explaining things, expositing, exchanging, answering questions. I'm the quote-unquote expert. And I'm kind of like the guy at the carnival who guesses your weight. (laughs) Because grammatically, yes, I have spent way more time than everybody else in Bible study Mm -hmm. studying law and gospel distinctions, Mm -hmm. studying Lutheran theology, studying Lutheran exegesis. However, when it comes to the matter of God revealing himself to us, I am a carnival barker at best. I'm the guy at the front of the group who is at the doors of the castle demanding Frankenstein give us his monster. <laughs> yeah. And really, I think that's what we do a lot of times is we treat Jesus like Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. But on, uh, Where we're like, show us the beast. But he bites back. I mean, that's the thing. That That's the problem, exactly, is he's not the gentle giant of Mary Shelley's novel. Mm-hmm. He jumps off the top. He's the Hulk. Yeah. He jumps on the building and smashes us. Yeah. I don't, I don't think people and, think of uh, reading the scriptures as... as uh, fraught with difficulty, really dangerous, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think going to churches too, you've talked about that with, uh, you know, warning like an atheist friend <laughs> or mm-hmm. agnostic, right. you know, it, it's not going to be pleasant. I mean, <laughs> the Lord has his way with you either it's, way. It's uncaging a lion. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't tell the lion who to attack. You get out of the way because the lion will attack you. Yeah. Dummy. I mean, <laughs> it's a lion. Right. So, that's the the elegance of Lutheran exegesis when it's Reformation Lutheran is we just point to the text and get out of the way. Yeah. And really our primary question is, where's Jesus? Well, and maybe not even get out of the way. I mean, that's I understand what you mean by that, but also, you know, let it put you to death. That's basically it. It's like, okay, exactly, I'll die. Exactly. Yeah. Because will. that is the backspin of that question. You know, or the backspin of that statement, I would have you show us Jesus, mm-hmm. or we would have you show us Jesus. Mm-hmm. The backspin is, I can show him to you, but it's on the other side of death. Yep. Yeah. You're going to have to die. And that's Your will's going to have confession. to die, right? <laughs> right. Like We confess that. In fact, we talked about this in adult Bible study when we were wrapping up Zephaniah, that if your salvation was based on whether or not you passed the test, then, and somebody else brought this up, a mother brought this up, actually, that... She would prefer her child died at childbirth than live because that would mean then that the child has not had a chance to screw it up. We, the, the child's born. We baptize the child. The child dies. He, he goes straight to heaven. Wow. Versus the 83-year-old woman who said, I wouldn't want to live if 
at 83 years old, I knew that's what was waiting for me when I died. Wow. It's just the anxiety of wondering whether or not God loves me or will forgive me for all of the things I've done in my life that I regret. And when you start talking about all the things that you don't know about that you did, that you don't regret, and the weight of that, but rather in relation to Jesus as sacrament, the, 80, the same 83-year-old woman said, I'm ready to go anytime. I look forward to dying because I know exactly what happens when I die. I'm going to be with Jesus. Yeah. That's at 83. That is the whole reason she gets out of bed in the morning is knowing today could be the day. Hmm. Today could be the day I'm going to go be with Jesus. Hmm. That's the difference between predestination and election as Lutherans understand it. Election says, take comfort. You're going to be with your savior versus predestination, which is, well, we just can't know until we get there. Hmm. It's like uh, Wally World. Yeah. Is it open? Is it closed? We won't know until we get there. It's <laughs> kind of a bummer. It is a bummer when you when you lay it out that way pragmatically. Yeah. And that's another part of this to bring to, you know to point a light at is Lutheran theology when it is Lutheran is eminently practical theology. Yeah. It's very earthy. It's very down to earth. And it has a lot of traction because it's all rooted in vocation. And as I said at the beginning, Luther grounds the work of Christ for our salvation in creation. Yeah. If, if, to, if today we, is about living for yourself, then there's no reason to get up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or, hey, if you get out of bed and, and trip and break your neck, you're going to the judgment. Mm-hmm. And we don't know whether that means condemn you or justify you. We don't know. So good luck on the other side. Yeah, that's a shackling That's horrifying. Thing, right? That is yeah. a horrifying way to live. It's, it's chains around your neck. It's As the mother said, that... Yeah. Exactly. That, that when she talked about friends of hers who actually believe that, mm-hmm. that we are put on earth to be tested, she said conversations with them are, is so depressing for her because she's the mother of five. Mm-hmm. And how could it not be depressing? How could that not be horrifying when you have children? Yeah. And you're listening to someone say, yeah, the older you get, the more mistakes you make, the more errors the more disobedient you are you know you sin 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 and all you can hope is you get more in the debit column than the credit column before you die Blah. Blah. no yeah that's a burden Pass. i mean that's a burden that's a weight that's that's insufferable really i mean why why even bother yeah exactly why even bother so eat drink for tomorrow we die and by the way or... folks for those of you listening i am a i am aware that i say exactly a lot Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I say it a lot. Uh, I, I do repent of saying "quote unquote" so much in the last podcast. I don't know where that came from. I never say that in real life. No, I must that have was said unique. that fourteen times. That was unique. It was driving me crazy because I was saying "quote unquote" to things that were I wasn't even quoting. It was like in a general sense, "quote unquote." Were you doing air quotes at the same time? Oh no, those are the worst human beings on earth. There's a special hell for people that make air quotes. <laughs> Let's, my son let's does not it. overstate it. Nuts. Oh. My, my son does it by, by hunching up his shoulders and tucking his elbows into his ribs and then making air quotes, <laughs> which makes it even more it's annoying. like Austin Powers or something, right? Oh, it's oh no, not Austin Powers. So Who is it? Dr. Insipid. Evil, right? Yes, Dr. Evil, yes. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. but anyways. Yeah. Yeah, so back to the text. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That... These whole th- the whole matter of law and gospel, life and death, will, not free will, for Luther, these are all synonymous with God. And as soon as we start talking and behaving as if 
we have some control over these things. All we're saying is, I'm a sinner. Yeah. That's all we're confessing. Yeah. So to continue then, Luther could not agree with Erasmus that free will could make us children of God. Free will limited the all-embracing acti- activity of God and made sinful and enslaved man a being equal and similar to God. Hmm. Which we can go back to Tuoma Monerma. That's his whole project in the end, was to make us similar to God. Yeah, and he, I mean, we don't want to be too crass about it. He would say, well, you no. know, God aids in that by baptism and forgiveness yes. and the sacraments. And, right. You know, it's, yeah, we, we he's would working say he you up almost, to the point. Almost a medieval Roman Catholic understanding of what the sacraments do for a Christian. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're God's rebuilding project of you, and you just cooperate with that, and but then you get to make a choice, right? Exactly. In the end, it's still about your choice. Hmm. And that's the big hang-up is that in the end, your salvation does hang on your choice. I kind of feel like we should just have the Rush song playing this whole episode. (laughs) Tom Sawyer? No, Free Will. Free Will? Mm -hmm. How's it go? I know. I made my choice. (laughs) No, I know know what you're saying. I I think I just listened to that song last week, actually. But um, I just want to throw Tom Sawyer out there. It's the first thing that popped in my head. Oh, okay. Squirrel. Squirrel. Speaking of which... My baby girl, my shield maiden, Gita, will only calm down to Gojira. For those of you who don't know what the band Gojira is, it's a French heavy metal thrash band. Uh-huh. That's what I was thinking. And it was, I was listening, to, I was watching a React video. I love those guys at Lost in Vegas. It's a YouTube channel. They're hip hop dudes who listen to heavy metal and react to it. It's fun for me because they listen to stuff I grew up listening to. Mm. And it's fun watching someone who as an adult discovers stuff that I discovered when I was 13 years old. It's just fun because I don't have that excitement about Iron Maiden like they do. Like when they discover Iron, like they discover Megadeth, Holy Wars, they're going crazy. They're, they're amazed at the skill and the technique of Megadeth, right? And just that enthusiasm makes me then want to go back and listen to bands that I grew up listening to and really enjoy them new. Yeah, because right? they're, they're actually so they objective, listen- right? They are objective. Mm-hmm. And one of their favorite bands is Gojira, huh. which is amazing to me. I didn't know they were French. <laughs> oh, there you go. I didn't until my wife asked me because she thought they were Swedish. And I went, yeah, they probably are. They're Gojira and they're a Swedish death metal band, right? No, they're French. <laughs> And my daughter was pitching a fit because she wants to eat every five minutes. And she was laying there. And as soon as I went from the React video to the actual song itself without the interruptions, because every time they played the music, she calmed down. And then every time they stopped it to talk about it, she started yelling and screaming, getting angry. <laughs> and so it became almost like this Skinner box test for me. Oh, that's and hilarious. So I would turn it on. I would turn it off. I would turn it on. I would turn it off. And she would scream and not scream and scream and coo. So I turn on the, the live version of the of it. It's like seven and a half minutes of the song. Okay. And for seven and a half minutes, she didn't move. She was cooing. She And then she started kicking and punching the air. So I played more Gojira songs. Hour and a half. No yelling, no crying, no screaming. Just laid on the bed, kicking, punching, cooing, happy as a lamb. Turn it off. She immediately starts screaming again. I this I just I can't even fathom. They're children and their t- musical tastes. <laughs> I know, right? It's amazing. Hmm. So there it is. My Go my baby girl, my shield maiden. She likes French death metal, and. Uh, Unfortunately, I tried to play it in the morning yesterday for her to calm her down so my wife could actually take a shower and get ready. But at 7 a.m. in the morning, French death metal, a little grating on the nerves. 
<laughs> a little, little hard to get going, especially pre-coffee. Yeah, that's like afternoon music when you're kind of dragging. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of music I listen to when I work so that I don't have to listen to the... I listen to the beat. And oh, I, I got gotcha. you. The, the rhythms. Yeah. The staccato-ness of it, it kind of lets me zone in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not at 7 a.m. in the morning. No, uh-uh. <laughs> not when I'm not even out of bed yet. But baby girl loved it. And uh, she liked Animals as Leaders, too. I sent you that... Uh, yeah, I haven't watched it yet. Links to those I've watched that. Animals as Leaders is amazing because they both play eight-stringed instruments, and it's a three-piece band. Huh. It's kind of like King's X, but right. on steroids. Right, right, yeah. And they do a lot the of... The power trio, is, as they call those, right? It is. And it's, as Annie said, when you watch them, they're so relaxed, so chill, and yet what they're playing is so fast and so fluid and elegant and amazing the way they go up and down the neck. And it's, yeah, it's progressive, but not in a way that you get tired of it after two minutes. Okay. That there is actually song structure to it. There is actual uh, rhythm and cadence and it's not constantly changing. You can follow it and enjoy it. I think for they wouldn't it call it progressive, call it metalcore, right? Yeah, metalcore, exactly. Mm-hmm. And Math- I, heavy, I just, heavy I, emphasis on mathematics and yeah. Yes, exactly. And they're big jazz fans, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge King's X fan, huge King's X fan. And still, I love King's X. And so for me, watching this three-piece, and okay, fine, both the front men are bass players, and they're like, okay, fine, but whatever. <laughs> Nonetheless, when I listened to Animals as Leaders, it kind of just went, hey, you got to go back and listen to King's X, another three-piece band that was very musically talented, that was underappreciated because they didn't really fit into any genre. Mm-hmm. They're still touring, though. At a though. time when you had to be grunge. Well, they, they came in during hair metal, but they weren't hair metal. No. And they overlapped with grunge, but they weren't grunge. They were just doing their own thing. And so they carved out a, a career for themselves mm-hmm. and a fan base, but they never really rose above the level of, they were what were referred to as a musician's musician. Yep. Um, if you asked other musicians, who's your favorite bands, they would all say King's X. But you ask the guy on the street who watches MTV, MTV every day after school, no idea that King's X did Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Over my head, one of the greatest rock tunes of the 80s, period, done, hands down. Over My Head on Gretchen Goes Nebraska is awesome. I love it. Um, anyways. Free will. Sorry. <laughs> That's Rush. It'll do that to you. Yeah, you did. That's right. It was your I did. Fault. I did. I started the music I'm conversation. Blaming, I'm blaming you. Oh, yeah. Last week, I was referring to History Buffs, that channel I was talking about that critiques movies and how historically accurate they are. Mm-hmm. It is called History Buffs, and I recommend it to everybody to go check out. Um, he does a good job with it. I enjoy it. Uh, I guess you, if, especially if you're interested in history, it's definitely worth checking out. History buffs. But history buffs. And one last recommendation, CinemaSins. Mm. Yeah, that, just Google it. I love, I love CinemaSins. It's ruined me, movie watching for me forever, but it's it's that level of snark that <laughs> I really appreciate. Right. <laughs> that and honest trailers. But I love CinemaSins. My kids love CinemaSins. In fact, they'll watch a movie and then go watch Cinema Sins immediately after they watch the movie. And then mock it? And Oh, 100%, yes. Yeah, yeah that takes the fun out of it, though. I mean, it's kind of nice Especially to be naive, Marvel movies. isn't it? What's that? Isn't it nice to be naive and just like not recognize all of the plot holes and everything? Oh, my brother, that's where you and I part company. <laughs> oh, Noah, I don't, I'm not a big fan of naivety. Okay. I'm not a big fan of the French. That's why, again, I can't believe I like Gojira. I don't like really anything that's French. 
Other than maybe Jules Verne. Naive and French go together? <sighs> it's a naive. Naive is French word. Well, okay. <laughs> naive doesn't Naivete. mean... Naive and French. Oh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being I'm just being uh, a, a Gen Xer. I'm being a stereotypical Gen Xer. I hope my French cousin Contra- doesn't contradictory, to contrarian for the sake of being contrary. It was like the time I told my French cousin that uh, who also speaks German that uh, French poetry is better than German poetry, and he just starts he just starts going from memory into uh, who's a famous German poet? Uh, what's the guy's name? Goethe. Yeah, Goethe. Just and just starts saying, "Say that's you know not good poetry." Because there is only one famous German poet. <laughs> uh, German poetry is almost an oxymoron. It's, it's like Vogon poetry. It, it, it's slam poetry, essentially, is what it is. <laughs> just someone screaming in your face in verse. <laughs> oh dear Lord! Okay, sorry. Back to the text. Free will was to Luther a reflection of man's most brazen pride his desire to be like God. The combination of the words free and will was to Luther a horrible thing, representing Satan's kingdom in all of mankind. Yep. No, really, what do you, what do you really think about this? <laughs> Holy cow. If you put the word free and will together, what you really just have is Satan's kingdom at work in all of humanity. Hmm. So for Luther... The, the philosophers who argue about this, for him, that's just Satanism 101. Yeah, this is like uh, the Original temptation in the wilderness, right? Yeah. Except you're, you're in Jesus's place. <laughs> exactly. Well, in, in Romans 1, that hmm. what, is, what does free will feel like? According to Paul, free will feels like the wrath of God. The wrath of God feels like free will. Hmm. So therefore, this is the danger, is that God's wrath feels to us like free will. Therefore, when we get what we want, so to speak, we need to be super careful because it may not be that we are receiving God's quote-unquote, there it is, blessing. There, I did it. I did it! Bingo. (laughs) I repent. 100%. I repent. Exactly. Just say it, Donovan. Just say it. We don't receive God's blessing. It may be that it's God's wrath at work in, in us. Yeah. That for Luther, the seventh mark of the church is bearing the cross. Right. And the reason that this is so important for Luther then is to this point. When we bear the cross, when we suffer affliction for the sake of the gospel, that is proof that God is at work amongst us. When we get all that we want, hmm. that's evidence for Dr. Luther that we are suffering God's wrath. The difficulty, obviously, though, is in real terms if I am receiving everything that my heart desires, the last thing I'm going to do is, is turn around and ask, is God judging me? Hmm. Is God punishing me? Because if I've got the mansion, if I've got the six-car garage, if I've got two private jets, am I re- – I just read yesterday that some televangelist dude bought a $2.3 million jet oh. from Tyler Perry. Oh, really? With offerings, yeah, he bought them with bought it with the offerings from his congregation. This is not Creflo Dollar, and now is he it? Takes, is that who it is? No, I don't think it was. He Creflo. takes selfies with him and his wife inside and outside the airplane now every day, practically. Thank you for the airplane. That's the one. Mm. Wow. <laughs> who is that? I don't, I don't remember. Is uh, maybe it is Chris Fowler. Creflo. Is that who it is? Creflo Dollar. I don't know. I'll find out. Uh. Okay. Anywho. One, I don't want my congregation to buy me a jet. No, I mean, well, just think I about do, the cost of I don't. fuel. Two, there's that. And three, 
do you really think that God wants you to have a private jet that costs $2 million that you didn't pay for yourself so that you can fly around rather than take care of your own congregation? Mm. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. Well, that's kind of the, All I know kind is of the that curse of money, of, right? Well, outside of the cross, that's the theology of glory. Yeah. That's what we're led to conclude. Hmm. That he is definitely not bearing a cross in that particular situation. Right. He doesn't fly coach. He doesn't bear a cross. That's a theology of glory. Hmm. And But if he's glorious, then you're so glorious common, too, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the trick with it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, right, that you're living through him. Mm-hmm. That his success is our success. It's very communistic, actually. It's very Soviet-era Russia type of all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others kind of mentality. Yeah, I guess. So that we're all faithful Christian brothers and sisters. It's just that I need a jet. Uh, well, Creflo Dollar, he wanted a $65 million jet. That's what he was working towards. Oh, no. This guy this guy really settled. I mean, he only spent $2.3 million. Because I, I guess that's how much a Gulfstream can... G650 costs. $65 million. Wow. Yeah. All right. I just had my voters meeting on Sunday, so it's too late for me to put that on the agenda. <laughs> Next year. Next year. First a sabbatical, then a jet. Got to build up to it. You can't just throw them the jet. Got to build up to it. Mm. So Dr. Luther continues, at its best, free will is at its worst. So let me get this right. At its best, free will is at its worst. There we go. So what Dr. Luther says is that when free will is at its best, that's actually when it's at its worst because it resists the righteousness that comes through faith. Mm. Luther understood the biblical antithesis between flesh and spirit to mean that in the state of false righteousness, man is flesh. That means confident in his own resources. This righteousness rests upon man's own works, efforts, and strivings. In the very act of trying by the utmost spiritual activity to make himself acceptable to God, man is flesh. He seeks his own glory as he prefers to God his piety and perfection. Boom! Mic drop. Hmm. Roll credits. Movie is over. That by applying himself in his utmost spiritual activity to make himself acceptable to God, man is flesh, period. That when we think we are at our most quote-unquote spiritual, and Luther actually has quotes around that, or Pinema puts quotes around flesh and spirit. When we are at our most spiritual, we are actually at our, at our most fleshly. Hmm. When we think we are our most, our most righteous, we are actually our most sinful. That's really... Because we seek our own glory... And what we're offering up to God on a silver platter is our piety and our perfection. So, I mean, that's that could really be a heavy indictment against the spiritual, not religious crowd. Yes. You know, which is a, yes. it's another, it's self-chosen piety. That's the first problem with exactly. it. Exactly. Well, and this is why I make fun of false martial arts. Oh. And it's not just a mock it because it's ridiculous. Like the video, there's a new video that came up that there's a guy who's at least 70 pounds overweight who's a black belt, who believes that if you focus your chi, just the sound of your voice can render someone unconscious. I think, did we talk about this? I feel like we talked about uh, this. Yeah. And you, you watch it and you laugh at it. But what I do is I laugh at it and then ask, do we as Christians do something similar? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, of course we do. If not, watch Benny Hinn videos on YouTube. Yeah, we're like lightsaber boy. Or a lightsaber boy. That we laugh at it when it's other religions or other practices, but then when it happens to us, we say, oh, no, that's legit. 
That's totally legit. Mm -hmm. So over here, it's called chi. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. Nobody could possibly believe in that kind of nonsense. Over here, we call it the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Faith, <laughs> if faith, uh, like uh, mustard seed, right? And you can move mountains. Yes, you know, of course. So just, just that we watch a Benny Hinn faith healer type of guy, or we read about some minister who buys a $2.3 million jet with his church's offerings. Mm -hmm. And we look at those and say, well, that is obviously absurd. That's a theology of glory. That's satanic, however you want to critique it. But in our own congregations, how do we perpetuate this kind of thinking, this kind of behavior hmm. that, that we, we offer to God our piety and perfection? As if that's what he wants from us to, in order to accept us as Christians. Right, exactly. How many church dividing arguments at the local district synodical level, how many church dividing arguments between Western and Eastern, Eastern churches mm. all erupted because one side pointed at the other side and went, well, that's absurd. I can't believe you actually can believe that mm. without looking at itself and saying, really? Well, what about this over here? <laughs> what about that? What are you going to do with that? It's easy to say all other religions worship a false God except for our religion. But then when you break it down into, well, our religion is the only religion that worships a real God. <laughs> and by that, I mean our denomination. And by our denomination, I mean our district. And by our district, I mean our congregation. And by our congregation, I mean us. And by us, I mean me. Is It's an ever-tightening spiral of violence. Yeah. And left to ourselves, we will end up in a closet alone, <laughs> claiming that we alone are the only true Christian on earth and we alone worship the true God. Hmm. It's what we do. <laughs> When we assume we have free choice. Yeah. And we're not justified through faith in Christ. Because we'll even turn faith in Christ into a work. <laughs> it's easy. Do you have enough faith? It, do you have strong faith? Do you have weak faith? Are you backsliding in your faith? What are you doing to strengthen your faith? Notice the pronouns. Your faith. Your faith. My faith. My faith. I had this conversation last night with someone. Well, my faith is personal because. And I said, no, it's not. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. You, you have no faith. The Holy Spirit gives you faith. It's the Holy Spirit's. Right. It's a gift. Enjoy it. That's not quantity. But as soon as you say my faith value or something like that, right? Well, that's what you're doing. You're assigning value to it over and against other people's faith, right? And the value that you see, right? Do they value their faith? Do they undervalue, overvalue? Like, what's the cost benefit ratio here? Well, and weak and strong faith implies some degree of contribution to it, right? Like, yes. Like, what have you done exactly. to strengthen your faith, or what have you done to to weaken it? Mm -hmm. versus what is the Holy Spirit doing? Mm -hmm. What has Jesus done? What is Jesus going to do to strengthen faith and increase love as we pray in the post-communion collect? It's not, it, as soon as you start throwing around those personal pronouns, that's a pretty good indicator that you're trying to exercise that free will again, mm -hmm. that you believe you do have some choice in these matters. Because only the old Adam would think that God wants our piety after all that Jesus has done for us, God would say, well, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, but also follow your own heart. <laughs> yeah, right. What kind of nonsense is that? I mean, that's you're, you're like G.I. Joe, a real American hero at that point. Hmm. <laughs> you just, I'm a real Christian hero, and, and God says so. No, you, no, that's not how this works. No, uh-uh. No, real, just don't. Stop. stop. Stop, stop, stop. I like that. But it also goes to the point of this whole podcast, and the reason I chose this text from Pinema on election is it, it is the doctrine that we are, I think we're the most standoffish about it. 
because we're so uncomfortable with the fact that the the doctrine of election takes all choice away from us whatsoever. Yeah. It just it reduces us to nothing more than just creatures. And we hate being reminded that that's all we are, that we're not gods. This is the appeal of Buddhism. Mm. This is the appeal of ad hoc Americanized Buddhism, that we are all gods and that we just need to realize it. And then we can truly be free to live our lives and realize our potential and blah, 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 mm-hmm. self-help, nonsense, uh, inspirational meme, that kind of stuff. It, it's, it appeals to us at the most basic level because... We get to be the masters of our own destiny. Yeah. And that's where you cue, you cue the He-Man music. <laughs> I am the power. <laughs> I am the power. We already referred to She-Ra well, in a previous episode. So. I think I think we have. Well, that's what happens when you go to free will. You end up like little He-Man. Hmm. And who's Mum-Ra then? It's, oh, no, that's is. a it's, different show. It's indicative. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It is indicative of a kind of parochialism an old Adam parochialism that we want free will, not, not complete free will. Cause that would be terrifying. We want a little bit of free will. Right. And yet, because also then if we don't have complete freedom, then we can blame other people when things go wrong. That's important too. Mm. If we have complete free will, then that means if something goes wrong, that's all my fault. Right. Cause I chose that. I had no choice, but to choose that. So it's, it's, that's it's the really of, the opposite the, the point of the, the bondage of the will yeah, is, it's really the opposite. yes, it is. The, the point of what Luther makes in the bondage of the will is the bondage of the will is you have no choice about whether or not to choose sin. That's all you choose to do. That's why you are in bondage to sin and death and cannot free yourself. Now, in relation to your neighbor, you have some free will. You can choose to put pants on or not. You can choose to speed or not. You can choose to feed your children or not. But God, knowing you as he does, takes steps. They're called the commandments. To protect you from yourself and to protect your neighbor from you and your exercise of your free will. Because left to ourselves with our freedom of choice, we will destroy whole nations of people in pursuit of what we want. So check out uh, Pinema. I don't know. you have any closing thoughts on this? Anything you want to add? Nah, that's pretty good. I'm kind of caught up in the whole idea of... uh, of, uh, I'm still singing Rush and I don't know. I got a little distracted by... (laughs) You reminded me of uh, Benny Hinn and the Dark Lord of the Sith. So, <laughs> let the bodies hit the floor. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I no, I don't have that one. That's a good one too. Yes, put that one. That's up. a good video. Mm. Benny Hinn, let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> oh, I'll, find, yes. I'll find that. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Buy some coffee. So, right. Buy some coffee from Gillespie. That's it. right for sure. Huh. If you want to be a real Lutheran, I buy Gillespie's I, I have coffee. Like very religiously themed blends, right? I mean, so. So they should. Well, of course, they that, that just tells piety. you how sanctified the brew are, the brew will That's be. Right. Your piety will go up, or what? Your your faith will be stronger, and <laughs> I don't know. That's right. Uh, I can, darker. I can't even make it up. Uh, your faith will be stronger and darker in an odd sort of way. But we're Lutheran, and if you live in the Midwest, wouldn't you want a darker, stronger faith? I mean, <laughs> how about a more but, flavorful uh, faith? <laughs> flavorful, effervescent, <laughs> aromatic. My faith, my faith is aromatic. <laughs> but uh, check out the the coffee. Buy the coffee. Uh, fund Pastor Gillespie's uh, children mm-hmm. and their hopes and dreams of living a life, <laughs> well fed and clothed. And we're, check out the podcast on at it. Higher we're Things. We'll get there. Um, what else? Subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast. We Rate this is as Lutheran as it please. gets. And 
write a review. Um, if you if there's a book or you know an article or something that you think, hey, maybe you guys have never read this or heard about it, and I'd love for you guys to read it on the air so that other people are introduced to it. Send me an email, shoot us a text message, or whatever, and we'll certainly add it to our queue. We've got about four other texts that we got to get to oh, yeah. uh, before we check out and kind of decide where else we're going to go. But we'll definitely do that if you email us. And uh, what else? I think that's all. That's Subscribe, good. buy coffee, listen to the other podcasts, support higher things, mm-hmm. uh, register for conferences. Um, I got it. I think I got it. Yep. And as always, I hope we pass the audition. See ya. like what you're listening to higher things podcasts are free for you but they aren't free to produce please consider supporting the higher things podcasts as lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support you summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor. I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant. And delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. (laughs) Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and delicious.